the Jewish views on the London mayoral elections. Hear what happened when the candidates were questioned by a Northwest London audience. How exactly did Jews influence men's high street fashion? A new exhibition at the Jewish Museum tells us. And commemorating the Kindertransport by taking to the tracks. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The new Israeli ambassador to the UK has arrived to take up his post. Mark Regev said he was excited to be here as he presented his credentials at the Foreign Office in London earlier this week. Mr Regev, a former foreign media spokesman for the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, succeeded Daniel Taub. His appointment was welcomed by Jonathan Arkush, the President of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. A pro-Israel lobby group based in the UK has criticised reports of a planned trip to Iran by Prince Charles, saying the regime there is anti-Semitic. It started an online petition in response. We Believe in Israel said it was disturbed by the news, which would be the first official trip to Iran by a member of the royal family in more than 40 years. A recent groundbreaking nuclear deal with the country has led to a thaw in diplomatic relations as Western sanctions were lifted. An organisation which helps Holocaust survivors and Jewish refugees in the UK is set to close in March next year. The Six Point Foundation was set up five years ago with proceeds from the sale of assets held by the Otto Schiff Housing Association. It was always known that it had a limited lifetime, but has used grants to buy things like stair lifts, medical aid and short-term care. It's planning a farewell party for early in 2017. Plans have been unveiled for a new Orthodox secondary school, which is to open in Barnet, apparently after huge demand from parents. At a meeting earlier this week, the organisers behind Barkai College outlined their ideas for the school, which they hope will be located in either Edgware or Mill Hill, though one prospective parent said no sites have as yet been identified, and plans have still to be submitted to Barnet Council. And finally, a budding young singer from Finchley caused Adele to burst into tears during one of her concerts at the O2 in London. Nine-year-old Austin Kindler was invited up onto the stage together with his sister Isabella after catching the star's eye because he held up a sketch of her drawn by his grandfather. He told her she'd inspired him to write music, which Adele said was very sweet, and promptly started crying. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Scrabble will be crowned Division 2 champions on Sunday morning if they beat Faithfold C. London Lions 2-2 draw at home to Le Keep last weekend means three points for Ray Abraham's side will guarantee them the title. This season's Peter Morrison Trophy Final will be contested between Hendon A and London Lions A. Hendon, who will be looking for a third consecutive win, beat Raiders C 3-1, while the Lions beat Raiders A 5-4 after extra time on Wednesday night. Elsewhere, Shahar Zubari will take part in his third consecutive Olympic Games when he represents Israel in the men's windsurfing competition in Rio this summer. Mayon Davidovich will compete in the women's event with Gil Cohen, Nina Amir, Ayo Levin and Dan Froelich all competing in the doubles. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. 
Joining me, Andrew Sherwood has continued to stay with us as he is, of course, sports and community editor alongside editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. I suppose we better start off for what will be a bit of a an impressive edition of the Jewish News this week, I shouldn't wonder, because you had rather a large event this week, Rich. We did. I thought you were talking about the size of the paper. It's a whopping 80 pages this week. It's our second biggest issue of the year. So do grab a copy. There's there's a lot in it. Yes, page one is our splash about our hustings, which took place this week. Boris's obvious obsession with the biggest role, the number 10 role, means he's not going to be contesting City Hall next month on the 5th. So Zach Goldsmith and Sadiq Khan, along with others, including Peter Whittle for UKIP, Caroline Pigeon, Sean Berry for the Green Party, and George Galloway, of course, will all be contesting it next month. We had the first ever Jewish hustings for City Hall on Tuesday in association with the London Jewish Forum and JW3. And it threw up some incredible, interesting subjects and issues uh, that are obviously very, very close to the heart of people that listen to this show and the readers of the paper. And I believe that amongst the headlines taken from that particular event was one based on Sadiq Khan being confronted about the recent bout of anti-Semitism that appears to have hit the Labour Party. So let's hear what happened when he was asked, did he think Jeremy Corbyn was a help or a hindrance to his party? Jeremy Corbyn's on the ballot paper on May the 5th, nor is David Cameron, nor is Boris Johnson. On, on the 5th of May, the choice is one of us people, including Sean, obviously, who's, who's, who's not here tonight. But is your party, and, well, is your you, you, you know, look, I've said at the outset, Doug, I'm embarrassed, I'm sorrowful about anti-Semitism in my party. I think the Labour leadership could have taken a tougher stance and needs to take a tougher stance. So as we hear from that, he's sorrowful. So is he making the right noises or do we believe him? There's a, a catalogue of calamities that have hit the Labour Party in terms of anti-Semitism. Only this week, the Liverpool MP, Louise Ellman, has come out and said how she is being attacked by members of her constituency, members of the organisation Momentum, which are the grassroots organisation behind Jeremy Corbyn's rise. It's another day, another scandal when it comes to Labour and anti-Semitism at the moment. And it's, uh, it's, it's shameful for the party and a lot of good people in Labour are doing a lot of good things. But it seems like they're hitting their head against a brick wall. Sadiq Khan was very forthright. Badge of shame is our headline. And as you heard him say, he's, he's sorrowful and embarrassed about the sort of thing that his party is currently having to confront. And he has made a pledge to confront it too if he becomes our mayor. While not saying that, I mean, Phil, you brought up the question before, do we actually believe what he says? I mean, politicians are famous for saying exactly what they think people want them to hear. As Richard said, everything that he said, very forthright described it as a badge of shame, he's sorrowful, etc. There's no reason to suggest that isn't how he feels, but obviously... Well, I think the other reason as well, and we have said this before on this programme, the reason why the community probably feels that they can relate to Sadiq Khan when he talks about anti-Semitism is because of his Muslim background and therefore coming from a minority, having suffered persecution because of being a minority, hopefully he's able to understand a bit about it. Speaking of anti-Semitism, obviously, though, that was one of the main topics of the night. And I know that Zach Goldsmith, who is the Conservative mayoral candidate, was asked, along with other members of the panel, what they plan to do about anti-Semitism. Let's have a listen to what Zach Goldsmith said in response to that. 
There are some very direct things the mayor can do. Above all, it does mean taking an absolutely ruthless approach to hate crimes of any sort. The mayor doesn't micromanage the police, doesn't get involved in micro-operational decisions, but the mayor does set the priorities, does set the direction. Zero tolerance towards hate crimes is essential. And we have seen a really worrying spike in hate crimes uh, of all sorts, but particularly anti-Semitism. What recently we saw, um, and Sadiq has already acknowledged, uh, events in Oxford, in the Labour Party there, which are uh, off the scale. We've seen uh, violent demonstrations at King's College where debate was happening around Israel, um, chairs being thrown through windows. We saw the tube stations being covered in uh, BDS uh, posters. Um, And to their credit, TfL did remove them. Some argue not quickly enough, but they were removed the following morning. We need a zero-tolerance approach to hate crime. We need to ensure security is adequate in places which are most at risk. Every single person in London is is at threat Uh, when it comes to terror. The terrorists do not distinguish between different religions, whether you're Jewish, whether you're gay, whether you're Christian, whether you're a Muslim who does not sign up to the twisted version, the twisted interpretation of the ideology that they represent. You are a target. So it is essential that we ramp up our police force. We give them the backing they need to keep us safe. We keep numbers high where they need to be. We ensure that when the police ask for bigger tools, for example, met chief at the moment is requesting the ability to double the number of armed response officers ready on patrol. That's something the next mayor needs to support. And intelligence-led stop and search is a key part of the program. The police need our backing. They need to know that the mayor is on their side, and you need to take a ruthless approach to anti-Semitism and all forms of hate crime, because it's a very small jump from the vicious things that are said to the vicious things that can happen to people. But of course, it wasn't just Sat Goldsmith, who gave his response to that, Sadiq Khan also responded to that question of how he would tackle anti-Semitism if he were to become the next mayor of London. Anti-Semitism has gone up by 60% over the last 12 months. It's not just a problem for the Jewish community. It's a problem for society. I, just, I compare it to a canary in a coal mine. If there's anti-Semitism in our society, there's a problem in our society. That's why it's so important for it to be a mainstream issue. And here's my action plan, Johnny, how we make it a mainstream issue. Number one, the Commission on the Met Police is on a one-year probation. I want to make sure he understands that hate crime should be zero tolerance and a priority for the Metropolitan Police Service, as Angela referred to for the CPS as well. Number two, many Londoners don't realise, and it's, it's not, it can't be right, in 2016, places of worship have protection outside them simply because they're synagogues. Mm. Or schools have protection outside them simply because they're Jewish faith schools. That can't be right. But you know, across London, there are some boroughs losing their hate crime officers. Mm. Final point. Uh, Final point is this. We police by consent. If the public doesn't have confidence in the police service, you're not going to come forward and report crime and give intelligence. We've lost 70% of neighbourhood police officers over the last eight years. I will make sure we bring back the bobbies and the beat. The police don't understand the hate crime laws. It's a grey area, and they're very, very reluctant to do anything. I'll give you an example about political uh, anti-Semitism. The use of the word Zio has now become a pejorative and racist term amongst the Jewish community, just like the word homo did for the people that Peter was talking about when he was growing up in the 60s and 70s. That sort of education we need in my political party. Uh, and I'm not, I, and, I, and it doesn't, it doesn't bring. I'm not proud to say that, but that's the state we've uh, reached to. Obviously, we would like to point out that we don't want anyone to be offended by some of the language that was used in that clip. That was merely highlighting what Sadiq was said, and obviously, it was not used with any malice whatsoever. 
The actual evening obviously consisted of nearly all of the mayoral candidates. What would you say some of the other highlights were, Rich? Well, I mean, schools and transport, they were both touched on in great detail by Jonathan Bartley, who stood in for Sean Berry from the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats' Caroline Pigeon. They both spoke very eloquently about that. But just listening to those clips, it's interesting. It really strikes me that even in the last four years or so since the last Boris V. Ken battle for City Hall, we are living in a very different world now where the priorities on policing and law and order and anti-terror legislation are front and centre of people's minds and are front and centre of these people's campaigns. So safety first seems to be um, a mantra that these people are certainly wanting to convey to the Jewish community. Okay, well, that was what happened this week with the mayoral hustings, but there is other news to cover as well. And we have a new Israeli ambassador. Yes, Mr Mark Regev, who back in August was announced as the new Israeli ambassador to the UK. He's finally um, arrived to take up his new post. And what has he said about taking office? Has he made any comments yet? Or is it so early days that he's not talking yet? He's here. That's all that matters. <laughs> he's saying nothing other than a very short, I'm excited to be here tweet, which uh, he's only just uh, launched a Twitter account, actually. I think it's got about 2,000 followers in a very short space of time. We're talking days. I've followed him. And thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador, for following me. Has he followed you back, has he? <laughs> he has, yeah. Oh, you um, see, a moment of fame. Ask him for a quote now. Yeah, but where's he been? Eight months we've been waiting, very excitedly. I mean, this is the most eloquent advocate of Israel, I think, probably in the media, it's fair to say. Netanyahu, I think, was very reluctant to let his golden boy go. But here he is in the UK. Daniel Taub, his predecessor, had a, a tough old time, but equipped himself brilliantly. So uh, he's got some big boots to fill, but arguably, He's, an ev- he's got even bigger boots. But yeah, we were going to run a, a front page story a few weeks or months ago, simply asking, where is our ambassador? Because it's, it's been an empty seat virtually ever since last summer. But he's here. Uh, and I know we're very keen to get the interview with him as soon as possible. Indeed. So whether it's in the paper or if it's on the podcast, whatever it is, we will get to speak to him hopefully before long. But uh, obviously, Malzot's off to Mark Regev on his new position. If that's what you say to a new ambassador. I don't know. OK, um, on to some lighter news. Uh, this is, I think, quite exciting because potentially, Family Guy, look out, there is competition about. We've got some very talented people working at the Jewish News. Perhaps one of the most talented is our in-house resident scribbler, Paul Solomons, who is an absolute inspiration. I always get a huge giggle out of his uh, sketches and kvetches, which readers probably see on the letters page every week. Well, now he's given birth to an entire family. We're going to do a weekly sort of Jewish family guy stroke Simpsons cartoon strip called Meet the Mishpacha. And obviously, uh, our readers know that Mishpacha means family. So we've got all sorts of cartoon characters, Benny and Becky, an awkward teenage daughter called Yolana Kaufman. We've got Yontov the dog, which I think I think is Paul's sort of reference to Santa's little helper in The Simpsons. Uh, I don't know whether or not it beats Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg's dog, though, of course, who's called Mitzvah. Ah, so there you go. He's good. Yes. So do we know if he can talk, though, like in family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can talk. He'll, he'll be uh, in subsequent episodes. Oh, so wow. episode one, timely for our Passover issue is around the family Seder. So I do hope people enjoy the cartoon as it goes along and raises a smile on a Friday night. And speaking of Passover, I believe that there is a nice Passover supplement out of the paper for this week. So what can we expect from that? We've got a cut out and keep Moses. 
So that'll be fun. We did a, a cutout and keep David Baddiel a while ago, and David Baddiel actually tweeted it. I think it, he said he was very proud that he's finally arrived in, in the high echelons of fame because we're actually <laughs> doing a, an official cut. So there's a cutout and keep Moses. It's on page one, and you can cut out your boils and your frogs and your lice and all your sorts of plagues. So that'll be fun. We have got an extraordinary exclusive. Stephen Burkoff, the legendary actor, has written his, his own personal Pesach story. We've got 24 pages of a really fabulous fair. So uh, do pick up a paper. As I said, it's 80 pages, so there's lots to enjoy. Indeed. Well, I can see Andrew frantically looking for scissors just so he can cut out the boils <laughs> and the frogs. So we'll leave you to do that. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for. For a look through for the paper for this week. But don't forget that if you do want to get more on the mayoral hustings and also listen to the full versions of those clips and hear what some of the other candidates have to say, do go to jewishnews.co.uk. Don't forget, you can also pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, and you can also read the e-paper online as well. Obviously, that as well can be found at jewishnews.co.uk. We are going to hear more about the London mayoral elections later in this programme for the schmooze this week, because that's going to be the focus of the discussion. But on to a slightly different subject. We learned this week that the Six Point Foundation is to close its doors early next year. To find out about some of the work that the Six Point Foundation have been doing since they were created, I've been speaking to Susan Cohen from the organisation. I started by asking her to remind us of the history of Six Point Foundation. Six Point Foundation came out of the Otto Schiff Housing Association, which has origins dating back to the 1930s, providing housing first for refugees from Nazi Germany and then survivors of the Holocaust. By the end of the last century, the homes that Asha provided for older Holocaust survivors and refugees had fallen into such a state that uh, either lots of money would have been had to been invested to bring them up to code or they could be sold off and the funds used for the population for which they were intended. And there were many beneficiaries of those sales of those homes and all of the residents moved to other fit-for-purpose homes. Together or individually? Individually, but many moved over to the Jewish Cares, either Selig Court or Autoship, but all over different places. And there was an excess of funds that could be used to help Holocaust survivors and refugees. And because the whole idea was to make something really worthwhile out of the sale of these properties, the trustees of OSHA decided to start up a time-limited grant-making foundation to provide extra support to Holocaust survivors and refugees in this country. And so that's what it's about. We came into existence in 2011. We made our first grants in 2012 and we'll be closing our doors in 2017 having made millions of pounds worth of grants to help holocaust survivors and refugees in this country both grants individually and also to organizations that support them so in what way would those grants help those holocaust survivors would it be through just accommodation or would it be to help no, the cost our, of living? Or? Uh, it's quality of life and there is funding that comes in, Holocaust compensation funding from what's known as the Claims Conference, monies from the German government. And we are very careful not to do anything that's already being done, knowing that we're time limited and there's been lots of good work going on for this population in this country before and there will be after we go. So our grants have been to provide 
extra support. So the grants to individuals have been for a range of purposes, from medical aids to travel for essential family events to very small things, magnifiers to enable reading for people who love to read and eyesight's deteriorating and can't anymore, to adaptations of bathrooms into wet rooms, major adaptations in homes that are quite costly. The idea being is just to make the Holocaust survivors' lives as comfortable as possible based on the horrible earlier life they may have suffered. Absolutely, and it's extra money at this time in their lives as they're becoming older and frailer. Some people probably won't be surprised to learn that Six Point, based on the work that you do, is coming to an end. And the announcement that it is going to shut its doors next year, 2017, might not come as a surprise based on the work you do. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that 2017 is the cutoff point. There are going to be Shoah survivors after that. What happens to them then? Absolutely. And we have always been very clear from the outset that we are what is known as a spend out foundation. We're here for a period of time, which as it happens, has turned out to be a very good period of time, I think, given the age and stage of our target population. But we've always said that, and we have been so careful not to reinvent the wheel. There, As I said before, there has been lots of amazing work going on for Holocaust survivors and refugees in this country for years and years and years, and there will be after we go. So we have only done what we call above and beyond grants. So extra things that have really made a difference to people's lives but there is still support out there and we're very sure of that we've worked really as closely as we possibly can with the main organizations supporting survivors and refugees in this country and that's association of jewish refugees shalvata which is part of jewish cares holocaust survivor center agudas israel housing association bicher holim and northland in bicher holim and they will continue to do great work with their survivor and refugee clients after we're gone. And in terms of your clients, do you have people who keep coming back to Six Point? Is it ongoing support or is it sort of more one-off and therefore that's how it almost not doesn't matter if Six Point doesn't exist, but more maybe won't have so much of an impact if Six Point doesn't exist? That's absolutely right. uh, We've worked really closely with those five organizations we mentioned. We don't take applications directly from individuals. They come through those organizations. And we do not fund ongoing grants because the last thing we want to do is make people worse off when we go away. So our grants have been very much for one-off expenses and Again, that can be anything from temporary care associated with, you know, a particular decline in health, or it could be improvement in the home if there's a roof leak or stair lift is required, but very much one-off. You mentioned that funding came through the sale of certain Otto Schiff assets, but is there any other way you're funded? Is it through private funding, government funding? No, we... uh, It's an expendable endowment, and we don't fundraise, which is a lovely position to be in, but we don't want to be a charity that perpetuates itself. Ashley Mitchell, who is chair of the Otto Schiff Housing Association, and the other trustees were very, very clear that OSHA was not going to perpetuate itself, that there were other services out there that could do what it had done, and that everyone, the community and survivors and refugees would be better off with the sale of those homes and the assets redeployed and it's 
was a brave decision, a brilliant decision, and there's no way that we could uh, fulfill their wishes if we did anything to try to perpetuate ourselves. That's not the point. It was to make a difference now and to do the best we can now. And we've had the funding to do a lot of outreach and ensure that we've left no stone unturned in trying to find survivors and refugees throughout the UK. And the other agencies, our partner agencies, do that as well. And new people do come along. And that's really important. And we hope and know that those agencies are in a position for that to continue after we've gone. So it's been great to be able to help with all that outreach and make those agencies known so that they'll be able to find the support once we're gone. Following the announcement of the closure of Six Point, does this mean now that if anyone, say, is listening to this and feels that their relative who maybe is a Shah survivor could benefit from some of the work that you guys do, is it too late now? Are you not accepting Absolutely applications? Absolutely not. We'll be, we are working harder than ever. We are not going to slow down at all till the end. And we will be accepting applications up until the last day. And these next six months, up until the middle of 2016, we are going to work harder than ever to communicate about our grants. We have a big role in the upcoming Yom HaShoah UK event on the 8th of May. And we are doing everything to communicate now is the time. But as I said, there will be support after we're gone. Just to satisfy my curiosity, because I've always wondered this, and I assume I'm right in my thinking, but I'm prepared to be corrected. The name Six Point Foundation, I assume, comes from Six Points of the Star of David. Is that right? Excellent. Most people don't get that. And yes, and also the six million million who lost their lives in the Holocaust. Susan Cohen from the Six Point Foundation talking to me there. And if you would like more information, then do go to their website, which is six, as in the word six, point foundation, all one word, sixpointfoundation.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn. They will be discussing what we've just been hearing earlier on in the programme, issues concerning the London Jewish community and what the new mayor of London should be doing about it. Plus, Clive will be speaking to Peter Headley about an event his organisation shall be putting on to mark the anniversary of the Kindertransport. Now, there are many industries that Jews are quite skilled at making a dent in. Television and film, the medical profession perhaps, even the fashion industry. The question is, though, just how much of an impact has the community had on the high street fashion that we all know and love? Well, a new exhibition at the Jewish Museum in Camden can possibly answer that one. It's called Moses Mods and Mr Fish, and entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us. She's been speaking to Liz Selby, the curator of said exhibition, and she started by asking her to tell us where the name came from. This exhibition covers 150 years of menswear history, and we wanted to have a title which kind of covered the vast kind of breadth of that and we wanted to give it a bit of a Jewish flavour so Moses stands for it could be Moses Moses of Mosbros or it could be Elias Moses of E. Moses and Son and we've got mods which feature quite prominently in the story and then Mr Fish is just this amazing 
fashion designer and kind of retailer from the late 60s and 70s who a lot of people have fond memories of. So there's a long history of Jewish couture, if you like, or tailoring. The old-fashioned Schneider, the, the tailor. You imagine sort of sitting cross-legged. What does the exhibition actually cover? The exhibition actually looks at, it's more kind of high street, ready-to-wear fashion. So we're taking the story a bit further than just the tailoring workshops of the East End. We're looking at individuals and companies who really made a change on the high street. Elias Moses, he was the founder of E. Moses & Son, who were this really huge company in the 1850s who made ready-to-wear clothing for men. And crucially, they made it affordable and fashionable for working-class men. For the first time, working-class men could afford to buy new clothes. Moses Moses was the founder of Mossbros, who many people know because of their famous hire department that was founded in 1897 and still is still going today. Didn't they help some of the young boys, particularly, who came on various transports and they gave them their first suit? I've not actually heard that story. Really interesting if it's true. <laughs> it was, well, here's me telling you about the exhibition. Yeah. My father-in-law came over on a transport and he was given however many guineas or pounds of what it was, probably a few shillings actually, yeah. and told to, to go and buy a suit. And I think it was Moss Bros. Anyway, <laughs> just a, an interlude. Let's have a look at the exhibition itself. Over here, we've got the company Emoses and Son that I've just mentioned. And I think one of my favourite things in the exhibition is this design for a reversible waistcoat from 1849 and as you can see it's quite interesting you think of 19th century men's clothing as being quite dark and conservative but this is a waistcoat that E. Moses and Sons submitted this design to the Board of Trade in 1849 and you can see it's very brightly coloured one side is red one side is blue and you can decide to wear it which side you want. Yes and they're quite bright colours really aren't they? Yeah obviously very fashionable which as I mentioned E. Moses and Sons were trying to make fashionable clothing for, for working class men. It was the first time perhaps that they could actually afford to buy new clothing. I'm looking at a dinner suit here. It looks quite formal. This, this is what I imagine to be the more formal sort of higher wear. Is that right? Well, this is, a, this is a dress coat from probably around 1900. And this was made by Hyman Co, who were again another company, a bit like Emoses and Son, who were operating in the 19th century making ready-to-wear clothing for men. And... This really symbolises the more formal kind of attire of the 19th century. But by this stage, by the time this was actually made, it would have been worn probably only for evening wear for formal occasions. And as you go through the exhibition, you see that clothing is becoming more informal. Men are starting to dress a bit differently. And once we get to the 60s, it becomes obviously much more colourful and much more flamboyant. And were these, where the clothes were made, they were now taken out of what we used to think of as sweatshops or East End sort of small factories. Were the workers moved towards more towards West End or did they kind of still stay back? We don't focus so much on how the clothes were made. We do focus a little bit on the tailoring kind of workshops of the East End. And we've got, for example, a great strike poster from 1889 when tailors were trying to improve their working conditions. What's quite interesting is as as we move to the Burton story, Montague Burton, who founded Burton, he was very, very involved in trying to make conditions much better for workers. And he built these amazing, huge model factories where workers would have on-site health care, 
they had a huge canteen, they were able to listen to music as they work. So we see kind of conditions improving quite a lot for certain companies. But obviously how clothes are made is still a huge, huge issue in today's world as well. Now, of course, most manufacturing takes place outside of Britain. But yeah, it's something we should all be concerned with. And are most of these clothes, the owners were were Jews, were most of them made by Jews? Were there still a lot of Jewish tailors? Most of the the clothes are all from Jewish companies. They weren't necessarily worn by Jews. And what we've tried to do with the exhibition is show how these Jewish companies had this much broader impact on men's clothing. So as we go around the exhibition, we see how what the major developments were and all along there are Jewish companies who are quite pioneering in making those changes happen. And what are we looking at now? This is a suit that was made by Burton. It's from 1936 and it's probably one of my favourite objects in the exhibition. Um, it's a beautiful double-breasted pinstripe suit And it says quite a lot about Burton's role for men. So by the 1930s, Burton was a huge, huge um, chain of shops. By 1939, they had 595 shops in Britain. They were a focal point of every single high street. And most men, particularly men perhaps of the lower classes, it would be a real rites of passage to go to Burton to get your first suit. How did the designers then, of those times, influence the high street stores? In what ways did the designs change? Well, we see changes taking place as we go through the exhibition. Some of them are quite subtle. What's quite interesting about this suit is that the design really emphasises the kind of masculine figure. So you can see the lapels are very wide, they're emphasising the chest, you can see the waist is quite fitted. And this is quite um, interesting because it's a time when not long after the economic crash, men are trying to kind of reassert themselves in society. Most men are having to go out to work for a living and it's really about making men look a bit more powerful. And we've got lots of catalogues here showing these wonderful illustrations of men looking very dapper and elegant and looking like men, basically. And this is an exhibition about kind of how clothes make men as well as well as the kind of Jewish company and the, the idea of clothes reflecting the not only the economic climate but the mood of the day yeah you'll see that quite a lot once we get to the 60s things become a lot more interesting it's, it's interesting I'm looking at this particular double-breasted suit and it does seem that the shoulders are huge yes they, they're huge and they really emphasize the chest and the shoulders so it looks now we've got a leather jacket yeah it's a suede brown suede jacket And it was sold by Cecil G, who were a really important company in the 40s and 50s. Just after the war, they start to make really stylish, fashionable clothing for men at a time of austerity and a time when men are kind of wearing demob suits and aren't particularly stylish. And what's quite um, interesting about Cecil G, he, he again was a Lithuanian immigrant who came to Britain. He set up in 1929 and... He started off in the East End but moved to the West End and his shops were quite near the kind of jazz clubs of Soho and so on. He had a lot of celebrity visitors and musicians. This particular jacket was actually worn by John Lennon. The Beatles were quite big fans of Cecil G. They visited the shop, they were photographed there and John bought this at the shop and he wore it during the recording of With the Beatles and during their 1963 tour. I'm fascinated by that and not only that, it looks so cool and modern and you'd almost wear it today it's very casual which is very different to what we have seen previously in the exhibition suddenly men can be casual they're much more informal and this is quite an american style as well we're really seeing the influence of american styles coming in this is the most wonderful jacket of nero style it's shiny and yellow and who would have made that and why 
It was made by Lord John, who were a Carnaby Street retailer. The shop was founded by brothers Warren and David Gold, and they were interesting because they were previously market traders, and then I think they saw the opportunity that Carnaby Street provided, um, and they were really good at responding to new trends. And what's quite interesting, this jacket dates from the late 60s, and probably it dates from just after the Beatles' trip to India, because at that point the Nehru style really becomes popular for young people. Because it is actually very Indian style, so you can imagine how the, the musical trend will affect the fashion. Exactly, yeah. And the red one looks like a soldier's jacket. That's from a King's Road shop called Granny Takes a Trip. As Carnaby Street started to become a bit more commercialised, the hippie look kind of started to take hold and the kind of fashionable crowd moved towards King's Road. And Granny Takes a Trip sold psychedelic hippie-style clothing. This particular suit is beautiful, kind of bright red, and it's got um, this kind of braiding and it has a very military feel. Military, again, the military look was really coming into fashion in the late 60s. So overall, it's interesting how the suit took root 100 years ago and never seems to have gone away. No, and also the last suit that we have here, which is from Top Man, this is actually from last year, 2015, you can see actually we've gone back to quite a conservative look, although this actual suit is a skinny suit, which Top Man introduced in 2004. And it's based on the mod style. So the styles are continually kind of coming back. And so we find ourselves in a loop. If anybody wants to know more about the exhibition, how do they find out about it? You can look on our website, which is www.jewishmuseum.org.uk. You can also download our exhibition app from your app store. Just search for Jewish Museum London. And the app will give you lots and lots of detail about the exhibition. It's narrated by Robert Elms. And you can also take a tour, a walking tour of Carnaby Street. Liz Selby speaking to Kate Fulton there about Moses Mods and Mr Fish, which runs until the 19th of June at the Jewish Museum in Camden. For more information, jewishmuseum.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Now, I don't need to remind you that thousands of Jewish children owed their lives to the Kindertransport, the scheme which saw many saved from the hands of the Nazis. Well, it's 77 years since it all took place, and to commemorate this, Papyrus Rail UK are running a series of railway journeys. Clive Roslin has been finding out more about it by speaking to one of the organisers, Peter Headley. Peter Headley is one who's been fascinated by kinder transport because a few years back I met a number of them and heard their stories. How exactly are you commemorating this 77th anniversary? Well, the idea is to have a series of events in Harwich, which was the port where the vast majority of kinder entered the UK, uh, a service of thanksgiving and remembrance in the St Nicholas Church, which is the, one of the most prominent features of Harwich, almost the first thing you see as you arrive. Also that day, or which will be the 1st of July this year, the annual children's carnival in Harwich will be happening uh, at the same time and will have uh, an appropriate theme. I must ask you, what led you to do this? Why were you so interested? 
Well, uh, I got involved uh, completely by accident, really. In about 2007, um, a colleague of mine from Czech Railways, uh, I've worked in tourist business and, and railway tourism in particular, running trains all over the world, um, and, but particularly in Eastern Europe and Russia. A colleague of mine from Czech Railways asked me if I would help him with setting up uh, a steam train journey from Prague to London. And um, that turned into what became the Winton train, which ran in 2009. And St. Nicholas met the train uh, on arriving at um, Liverpool Street Station. And we had 23 of the original Kinder, uh, which he uh, brought into the UK in 1939. Now, where exactly is the train going once it started to commemorate this whole thing? Last time in, in 2009, um, uh, it was a train that was uh, operated by the Czech government was for invited guests only. This time, um, we actually had people ringing us up saying, how do I buy a ticket? And we had to say, that, well, sorry, you can't. This time, there'll be hopefully a number of trains um, going there, two trains from London and possibly one from the north of England. One will depart from Liverpool Street and the other one will depart from Victoria and will uh, pick up at Finchley Road and Frognall, which is an area, obviously, of London that's um, very popular with the Jewish community. One of the trains will be hauled by the steam locomotive tornado and will be the carriages, should be the British Belmont Pullman, the Belmont British Pullman, which is uh, the only train uh, from pre-1938-1939, which is actually now running, now allowed to run on the, the National Rail Network due to the tightening of regulations. So that's the, that's the plan. Now, you said that you had 23 of the Kinder Transport people with you last time you did this. How many have you got with you this time? Well, we hope it should be about 50. Um, and there is a slight difference that last time the whole um, uh, project was conceived and, and financed by the Czech side of things and the Czechs only constituted sort of six, 669 children out of the almost 10,000 that came. The vast majority came from Germany and, and Austria and occupied Austria and last time it was really only the Czech children were there but this time the idea is to in, be more inclusive and include the uh, children from the other cities in, in Germany and Austria and indeed Poland. I think we will expect probably have about 50 at uh, least, hopefully maybe more. But obviously each year it gets harder because uh, they get seven, older. seven years ago, yes. the, the minimum age is sort of 80 upwards. Peter Headley of Papyrus Rail UK talking to me there about their forthcoming events to mark the 77th anniversary of the Kinder Transport. And for more information, go to papyrus-rail.com. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and community volunteer, Liz Hirschhorn. And the subject for this edition is based on what we heard a little earlier on in the show, ultimately the London mayoral elections but in particular, the issues the candidates should be offering to deal with for the London Jewish community. And in the interest of fairness and balance, we're not going to ask our guests who they are voting for, nor are any of us around the table going to say who we favour. But the question is, what do we believe are the biggest issues facing London Jews today? And what should the next mayor of London do about them? A massive question. So let's start with you, Laura Marks. 
Well, I was lucky enough to go to the Jewish hustings at the JW3 this week where all five, well, in fact, not the Greens, but five candidates were there uh, expressing their views. And so it was a very good opportunity to hear them all individually. And I think that you're right. We have to separate out in our minds in a way what we feel as Londoners and what we feel as Jewish Londoners and what are the Jewish issues that are coming up in this election. Now, of course, there's such a massive Corbyn factor at the moment uh, in the Jewish community um, and a big issue surrounding anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and a lot of concern, quite rightly, about what's going on to stamp out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Now, at the hustings, Sadiq Khan came out very openly about it, um, saying that he was embarrassed by the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which I think was very reassuring to hear, and we really needed to hear as Jews. Obviously, anti-Semitism, both in the Labour Party, but also generally in the community, is a big issue now, and I think that what we we need to know is that the candidates for mayor will be taking a zero tolerance view on anti-Semitism. Liz, how do you feel? Yeah, well, I obviously I agree with Laura that it is a big issue. And also the wider threat of terrorism, you know, they really need to address that. And some of the issues are, for example, with housing problems and rail fares. And, that, you know, there are lots of things that apply to everybody. everybody that, yes. that still applies, applies to us as well. But as far as we're concerned, I think the anti-Semitism probably is the most important thing that they need to address. Adam, you'd agree with yeah, that, I suppose. I, I do, very strongly, because I think we often get caught up with our more insular issues, like anti-Semitism. There's no way I'm doing down anti-Semitism. It's, it's the main issue that we need to concern ourselves with. But sometimes I do feel that the other issues in the community get lost, and they're just the same as everyone else. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Muslim, Christian... For example, I'm concerned about my children. I mean, few years yet, thank goodness. But when they leave home and they want to set up a life for themselves, I'm worried that they're not going to be able to afford, because especially living in London, afford the housing. Then are they renting? Then they're paying more money? Then their their standard of life decreases. But they're talking about putting a cap on rent so they can't keep putting the rent up. But it's really hard for young people. Actually, the issue of housing is a Jewish issue in that it's very specific because most of us live in northwest London and northwest London is a particularly expensive place to live. So what we're finding is that young Jewish people are no longer able to live near their families and increasingly they're having to move further and further out. So whilst it is a general issue, housing has a particular Jewish slant on it yes, too. Yes, you're right actually. And even the type of houses that most Northwest London Jewish children are going to live in are going to be so far out of their price range when they first try and get on the on the ladder that that you're right it is very much a Jewish issue and, and there's another very interesting part of that I it was being driven through uh, Golders Green today and shown a whole lot of new flats that are being built all very expensive flats. and I was told by the man who was driving me that in fact all these flats are being bought by Russians. Chinese, people from other parts of the world to keep in London and nobody else was living there. And if they were, they were renting it. The rents would be so expensive that nobody would be able to afford them. Mm. We lose our communities then. So we lose our communities. Will we though? Or will we just do what we've always done and move somewhere else? 
Because, I mean, we're already doing it. Boreham Wood, it's the fastest growing community in Europe, Jewish community in Europe. Now, there are lots of other issues that are related to that about where we live, uh, which are Jewish issues for London. So being able to live a Jewish life in London, which includes access to secure synagogues, access to kosher food, all of those sorts of things. I want to know that our mayor is open to and understands the issues of being a minority faith group living in London. And I want to know that they also are interested in the issues that Jews have in relating to the other faith groups. So in coming back to the mayor issue, I want that to be on the agenda what, what, big time. What, could the what mayor much do, can though? the mayor do exactly? Yeah. Well, the mayor can encourage the communities to get together. They can fund integration projects. They can fund interfaith projects and encourage interfaith projects. Um, there's all sorts of things the mayor yeah. can do. So, and in fact, the mayor can do it maybe better than national central government can do because they're local. Yeah. So I think the mayor can do a lot. Except that London is hardly local from that point of view, is it? I mean, he's got so many much more important, dare I say this, much more important things to think about as mayor of London than bringing different people together. Really? I don't think so. I think it's right up there on the agenda. If you want London to function, then people have got to know each other. I think it's a bigger pot than a smaller city, but I think it's very high on the agenda, getting people to know each other, local communities within London, local schools, local charities. You know, that that's what makes the city thrive. I think you're right, Laura, because I've always seen London as the epitome of multiculturalism and inter integration and I don't know if it's just me but in recent years I see all communities getting closer into themselves and maybe that is something that the mayor does have to work on because you're right it's not just the Jewish community it is all the communities seem to be getting closer to themselves and of course what does that do it puts barriers up against others I see that as well and there's so many new communities coming up with all the immigrants so it's it's become much wider. There's so many different communities to try and put them together. It sounds very idealistic. I can't see how they would do it, though. Well, I think that we've got this other challenge coming up, uh, which is already with us, which is, as you say, immigration. And um, our attitude to immigration as Jews is complex because on one hand, as immigrants ourselves, we're very, very sensitised to it. We're very aware of the need to look after people who come in, who are homeless, who come from strife. We've been there ourselves and we are commanded anyway. It's very integral to our faith group to take care of the stranger. And on the other hand, we've got a community which is anxious about immigration, uh, particularly anxious about immigration of another faith group. And we somehow got to work out in ourselves how we come to terms with that. And I think at the very basic level, we must take on board the responsibility for caring for people who come to this country, regardless of how people feel within the community. And there's a wide range of views about how people feel about immigration. 
I think that what we can and have to agree on is that once people are here, we have a responsibility to them. You're absolutely right about this, but it's, again, I say, it's a very difficult thing for the mayor to do because he has so many other things to do, and this is a, a huge problem. Well, I think you asked the question, what do we think the mayor should do? I think the mayor should do this. You know, I think that this should be a priority for the mayor, and I think that... It, it is going to be very important. We have got a community as a city with millions of people from a huge range of diverse backgrounds. And somehow we've got to come together and we've got to work together and we've got to get to know each other. And therefore, I think this has to be high on the mayor's priority list because it affects so many of the other things we're going to talk about. But he's going to have to worry about the, ter- the terrorism, as, as, uh, as has already been pointed out. Well, absolutely. We have and to be safe. That's part of it, but that's a huge part of it. Whoever that is, whoever the mayor is, you're right, that is a huge part. Can I ask you all the questions? Something that I've always had a bit of an issue in my own head about London mayoral elections, and that is, do you vote for what's right or what you think's best for the Jews, or do you stick with your party allegiances? I think partly take into account what we think is best for the Jews, as well as the wider scale. But I think we do probably, whether subconsciously or consciously, I think we take that into account. I think it's very complex. And I think that the mayoral election is different from the general election. And even within the general election, the question is, are you voting for the party or are you voting for your local MP? So even in a general election, you you struggle with those same issues. Um, And with the mayoral election, I think that we've got the issue of what do we feel as Londoners? Yeah. Uh, what do we feel as Jews and what do we feel as people with particular political allegiances? So it's a complex mix. Mm. Um, I think that the mayoral election is strange in that it's it's like voting for the president of London. Yeah, so, it is, So it? there's a lot of personality politics in it. And I think that that's not a terrible thing. I think that with the mayor, I think we should vote for the one that we feel safe with, uh, the one that we feel as an individual is going to do uh, what we want them to do. And you would vote for that individual even if it was the opposite party to who you would normally support? I think the mayoral election is is very specific. Personally, right. I think it's very specific. And as I say, there is a combination of all of those factors that go in there. Me as a Briton or as a Londoner, me as a Jew. We have different factors come in, but I think it is such a personal thing, this one. You know, Boris... Boris was Boris. Um, it was not irrelevant that he wasn't, um, that he was a Tory. Yeah. Uh, what yeah, was more true. relevant possibly at the time was that he wasn't Ken. Yes. Boris mm. is the only right. politician I know of in recent days who people don't think of as a party person. Although he's typically, perhaps, typically conservative. I don't know whether he is or not, but people voted for him. I know of a number of of people who normally vote Labour who all voted for Boris. I guess he's created a brand, the brand Boris, which I suppose the London mayoral elections are about branding yourself and selling yourself rather than your party then, isn't it? He was a big big personality, hard act to follow. Yeah. So, in fact, I'm I'm not saying this, but it, it might be thought that the current candidates don't have the same personality that he had i wonder 
though, that when I think back, I think that he didn't have as big a personality then as he has now. And um, we also had Ken, who also had a very big personality. And so, you know, it depended on really which of those two personalities we wanted to go with, the same as it is now. Although I'm afraid we're going to have to leave the discussion because our time is up. I have now got to list all the people who are standing. These are the people whom one could vote for. Zach Goldsmith, Tory MP for Richmond Park. Sadiq Khan, Labour MP for Tooting. Caroline Pigeon, leader of the Liberal Democrats in the London Assembly. Sean Berry, who's Camden's Green Councillor. Peter Whittle, the UK Independence Party's culture spokesman. George Galloway, former MP for Bathnell Green and Bow, as well as Bradford West for the Respect Party. David Furness, the British National Party's organiser in West London. John Zielinski, Polish prince and property boss. Paul Golding, leader of Britain First, Lee Eli Harris, activist and head of the organisation Sister, Cannabis is Safer Than Alcohol, Sophie Walker, leader of the UK's Women's Equality Party, and Ankit Love, leader of the One Love Party. And now let me say my thanks to our guests, founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi. UK. I recently took my son to see Batman vs Superman, the latest Hollywood blockbuster, and a thought struck me. It's a film about superheroes. But what makes Superman a superhero? What did he do to achieve that title? In essence, nothing. He just happens to have certain powers because he is Kryptonian and he lives on Earth. That gives him the powers that he has, but he himself has done nothing to deserve those powers. Batman, on the contrary, has had to do something. Batman had to train, had to become the crime fighter of Gotham City. He had to create all the gadgets he uses to fight crime. And in some ways, we look at those two characters from a Jewish perspective in an interesting way. We're coming up to Pesach. And Pesach, we read at Seder night of the wonderful redemption from Egypt that God did for us. But in essence, that's the Superman festival. Because in essence, what did we do? We just stood by and watched as God blew away the Egyptians with plagues and miracles, took us out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. It was only then, when in the desert, when beginning the climb to Mount Sinai, the spiritual climb, that we had to then change from a Superman to a Batman, to actually put the effort in, to go through the necessary changes to become a nation worthy of receiving the Torah. And that message is still relevant today, three and a half thousand years after the going out of Egypt. What nation are we? Are we simply Jews who just rely on miracles and sit back and hope it's going to be okay? Or do we actually take the challenge and say, no, we have to become who we want to become by hard work and action. You can't simply just sit back and be Jewish. It's an active 24-7 occupation, which makes us into superheroes way beyond anything Hollywood could imagine. 
Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. A special thanks to all the candidates for the London mayoral elections who took part at JW3 this week. Also to our guests, Liz Selby, Peter Hedderley, Laura Marks and Liz Hirschkorn, who were on the schmooze. And of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And don't forget, you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.